Zechariah chapter 12. Uh, I'll read verses 6 through 14. I think, I think we'll make it that far, but uh, maybe not. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fiery laver among pieces of wood and a fiery torch among the sheaves, so they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem will again be inhabited in its own place, in Jerusalem. Yahweh also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, Yahweh will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who stumbles among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of Yahweh before them. And it will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn each family alone, the family of the house of David alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Nathan alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Levi alone, and their wives alone, the family of the Shimeites alone, and their wives alone, all the families that remain, each family alone, and their wives alone. Last week we uh, finished this section, the, the picture of the delivered people. Uh, verse uh, 5 uh, told us, Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, through Yahweh of hosts, uh, their God. In our uh, habit of looking in the past, the present, and the future, uh, the present time was those who were in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple in the future, it will be those in the uh, gospel age who are uh, coming from Jerusalem uh, to the rest of the earth. So the, the heading that we come to to address verses 6 through 9 uh, is Jerusalem prospers over their enemies. Uh, there's intensified activity here, as we said last week, because the uh, phrase in that day is used four times in these verses there's a focus on jerusalem it's used five times we'll notice that as we uh, go through uh, chapter uh, chapter uh, 12 verse 10 and chapter 13 verse 1 mention david and jerusalem just as our uh, verses do and the focus uh, is uh, towards the future Matthew Henry says this will have its full accomplishment in the gospel church, uh, which is a Jerusalem inhabited in its own place. Uh, he says, for the gospel being preached to all the world, it may call every place its own. I, I uh, quoted that because I really believe that's true, that from Jerusalem, uh, it is a special city. It is a place where completely unique things were done that were never done in the history of the world. But in a sense, as Matthew Henry says, as the gospel spreads, the, the influence of Jerusalem uh, goes out. In the past, it was the city of Yahweh. 
in the present, there's rebuilding. And God is with Joshua and Zerubbabel and the people. And you remember some of those pictures. He said, you'll, you'll say grace to it when, when you see Zerubbabel put that top stone on. And when he has the plumb line in his hand, you'll say, Jerusalem is being rebuilt. But also, in the future, the gospel goes from where? It says, beginning from Jerusalem. And there's an eschatological future because the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And this uh, spiritual Jerusalem, uh, uh, just like that hymn, I don't know if Gene picked that up, but at, at last the weary ones are going to rest, the pilgrims are going to get to their father's home. What, what is it going to be? It's going to be Jerusalem the best, the new Jerusalem. Uh, so Hebrews 9:11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect ta tabernacle, uh, not made with hands. Uh, and that is to say, not of this creation. Hebrews 11:10. for he was working, or looking, excuse me, one of the patriarchs was looking for a city who has its foundations, whose architect and builder is, is God. The, uh, the Greek word there is uh, the word we get technician from. The, the, the person who planned the things, the, the person who knows how to do things, the person who can, can fix things, who builds, who designs. I'm, I'm having uh, uh, major problems with my computer. I never had anything like this before. And that's who I have to get. I have to get a technician, somebody who knows what they're doing about this because I can't. Well, the, the, the patriarchs were looking for a city that whose architect and builder was God. Only God could do what... Uh, what he could do. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, what do we come to as a reminder? The future spiritual uh, uh, place where we're going. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. That's who we come to uh, spiritually. Jerusalem is the focus. Revelation 21 and verse 10, almost the end of the scripture he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god and that is that is our hope a physical city with god's presence god's king was there we'll talk about that in a moment a city that needed to be destroyed and then rebuilt a city that was destroyed again by the romans but then finally and fully a new jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And then in verse 6, pictures of enemies uh, being conquered. And, and basically the idea here is that there's fire in a dangerous place. Uh, it says, first of all, that uh, 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 the nation will become a fiery uh, laver, or a fire pan or a, a fire pot. And... Uh, it, it will be right there around pieces of wood in a wood pile. And so if somebody started doing that, you would say, you would say, you, you can't build a fire there. Uh, uh, and then uh, the second picture is the fiery torch among sheaves. So the, the sheaves are the what's been reaped already. And they're put together and they're bound together and they're just there drying out. You, you would say to them, you can't put fire next to those sheaves. Uh, the result is that they will consume on the right and on the left. 
all the surrounding people. And many of the writers say that this is, this is a, a picture of the uncontrolled spread uh, of the gospel. In the present, God removed all the enemies. There's no, there's no sieges. There's no army out there. They're just rebuilding the temple. In the future, uh, it's the uncontrolled spread of the gospel. One of the early church fathers, uh, Chrysostom, called uh, Peter a man of fire walking through stubble. And he said Peter was like a fire himself. Where he went, the, the gospel spread. Uh, a powerful text uh, is, that, uh, is what Jesus said, Luke 12, 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and I, how I wish it was already kindled. So he is using the same picture. I'm bringing fire, and I wish this fire would start because this is the fire of the kingdom. This is the, the fire of the, the gospel. Uh, Philip says the faithful testimony of the apostles consumed uh, their opposition. Uh, then in verse 7, we see that the house of David will be glorified. We, we've seen this before. The, uh, the smaller is mentioned as a representative of the greater, but we can focus uh, on David and, and think of Jesus as well. Uh, this is another past, present, and future view. If we look at David, we would say, well, David was the anointed king. If we look at Christ, we would say Christ was the anointed Messiah. He came as the son of David. If we look at David and his relationship to God, it says that David was a man after God's own heart. If we look at Jesus, Jesus said, I'm one with the Father. We have the same perspectives. He tells me what to do and I say it, or, and I do it. He tells me what to say and, and uh, I say it. We see that David was praised by the people. Uh, Saul's jealousy was spurred on because they said, well, Saul slayed thousands, but David ten thousands. And they praised David. They also praised Christ on a number of occasions. You remember the entrance into Jerusalem. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. David was a type of the covenant and a type of the promises. And he was given promises. Somebody is going to sit on your throne forever. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 shows us that it's Christ unto us a child is born. How long is his kingdom going to be? Of the, 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 the kingdom will increase. Uh, the antitype people knew. Is this, is this the Christ they used to say? The blind men uh, screamed out, son of David. Uh, uh, they knew it. Who do men say that I am? Uh, David in Jerusalem. Uh, ruled and reigned. Christ, when he came to Jerusalem, you remember, he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2. They came, to, they came to him and they said, who gave you the authority to do stuff like this? And uh, Christ came into Jerusalem. David received covenant promises and Christ fulfilled all the covenant promises that were made uh, to David. So verse 7 says, Yahweh will Save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified uh, above Judah, but they will uh, be magnified. Uh, 
And then the weak become strong in verse 8. Uh, Yahweh defends the inhabitants of uh, Jerusalem. There are those who can't help themselves, uh, called the one who, who stumbles uh, among them in that day. Uh, but it uh, reminds us of chapter 11 and verse 11. Uh, so it was broken on that day, the, uh, the, the covenant, the, uh, the staff, you remember, favor. And uh, thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. The, 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 the small group of people who were believing in that day knew what, that, that it was the work of the Lord, that that uh, rod was broken. And then in the verse 8, there's uh, similes uh, of increasing power. If you see that, there's uh, three, three uh, likes. Uh, verse 8, the one who stumbles among them in that day will be like David. How does, how does somebody who uh, is stumbling become like somebody who is a king, a conqueror, who uh, slew ten thousands? And the house of David, here's the next step. Uh, will we'll be like God. There, there, will, be, there will be no way to, to stop it. And like the angel of Yahweh before them, there's this escalating strength. Uh, Barnes says this strengthening is, is wholly spiritual and it's protection for those in the church. Uh, and uh, uh, from the apostles and the early Christians onward, these, these uh, uh, people will see who uh, we're just like us are strengthened uh, in the gospel. The levels are graphic pictures of strength. Peter and Paul were raised to power. Uh, nothing could withstand the preaching of the gospel. And we hold in our hands the letters that remind us uh, of that. Uh, Paul's view of himself, you remember, was uh, I, I'm weak. And people say it about me and I agree. They say, well, he's not much to look at. His preaching really isn't that fancy. And, uh, but they still demonstrate power. We're all individually raised by the power of the gospel to be something that we're not. We are those who stumble. We are those who, who understand. Uh, the pictures are always there. Uh, the, the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who are meek in, inherit the earth. Uh, the weak ones 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27. It's the, it's the not many's of the Christian church. Who, who did God pick to, to be his people? It says, not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But who did God choose? Who did? Right? Debbie said it. Foolish. Oh, well, I... I'm not foolish. Well, here's your second choice. Weak. But he chose the foolish to shame the wise, and he chose the weak to shame the strong. See the power? Because Paul says, where is our battle? It's not physical. I don't go as a noble and say, well, I'm the, I'm the third viceroy, count of such and such and such. I'm a Christian. I have power. No. I go and I say, well, I'm one of these five things. I'm either a fool, I'm weak, I'm based, I'm despised, or I'm a thing that are not. I'm a nothing. It's not, 
It's not very flattering when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, isn't it? But if you understand who you are and where you came from, you understand all my power, everything comes from the gospel. What could I, what could I have done before? What could I have done before for the, the church of Christ? What could I have done before that would demonstrate the power of God working in me? Nothing. Because I wasn't converted. I was lost in sin. We all were. And all these things, the foolish, the weak, the base, despise, the things that are not, they are there to abolish the things that are. Who are you? Well, I'm nobody. I'm just a housewife. But the Lord could use you to witness over the back fence and the power of the gospel could save somebody. He... Pastor Martin used to call it the five-ranked army of descending human weakness. It was a great title, but that's what it is. Things only get bad. They, things go from bad to worse. You go from foolish all the way down to nothing. Things that are not. But what can you do in, in the gospel? You, you could be as powerful like David. And if you're powerful like David, you, you could be like God's messenger. Because you could tell somebody the truth of the gospel. And God could use that to break hearts, to abolish. Paul says we, we, we go out and we take strongholds and we bring them down. We cast them down. Whether that's in uh, preaching in the church, whether that's over the back fence, whether that's at work, wh wherever it is. We're light and salt. The idea is that light and salt, right, has power. Light dispels darkness and salt does something, doesn't it? What does Jesus say it happens if the salt loses its power? It's good for what? Good for nothing. It's good for nothing. See? But as it's salt, it has power. Uh, verse 9, the final day or the final time to, to look through. In that day I will destroy all the nations that come up against uh, Jerusalem. The great battle is summed up by Paul, as I've already mentioned. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but what? Divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That is the battle. The final time Jerusalem was surrounded by the Romans, it's not a physical battle. We're casting down imaginations and speculations in people's minds. We... we, we Go, we tear down those things and the things that are raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what we tell people. Oh, you need to be a Baptist like me. Oh, you need to, no, no. You need to obey God and bow to Christ. Christ, Christ is the ruler. Christ is the king. Christ is the fulfillment. Every thought captive of Christ and are ready to punish all those who, who disobey. That's what we're telling people. If you continue to disobey, God will deal with you. And then before we get to the great time of mourning, just to sum up, sum up and finalize thinking about Jerusalem, it's not going to have any more enemies. All the, all the nations that come against Jerusalem are going to be uh, destroyed. We'll see that as Russ finishes up in, 
in, uh, in Revelation. Literally, all the enemies are gone. And then those verses about the, the New Jerusalem come. That is what will happen. It was the city of God. It had all the kings. It had the true king. It was the chosen city. It had the temple. It had God's presence. It had prophets. But it also was a besieged city, a conquered city. It was ultimately destroyed. And all the systems of the, of the Jewish systems that were instituted are now gone. They were obliterated. Jerusalem was the home to the ministry of Christ. It was a home to the death and resurrection of Christ. It was home to the ascension of Christ. Maybe he was out on a hill, but they went from Jerusalem to go out there. His, his promise about the pouring out of the Spirit is that it's going to start in Jerusalem. On that day when the Spirit was poured out, they were in Jerusalem. On that day when thousands of people were saved, they were in Jerusalem and the spread of the gospel went out uh, from there. Jerusalem became a uh, conduit of salvation, as we'll see uh, later on when Zechariah says there'll be a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. A fountain, not a trickle, a fountain. Christ fulfilled all those things. He got rid of the, the three things and became the prophet, the priest, and the king. And then uh, the new Jerusalem, and, and you would say, you would say, wow. Jerusalem is free at last, isn't it? Well, all of God's people are going to be free at last because that's those passages in Hebrews that we read. That's where, that's where we're headed. We have come to the mountain, to the new Jerusalem that came down from heaven. That's our goal. We're like the patriarchs. We're not the architect and, and, and builder is God. We're not looking for a, a physical place. We're, we're looking for spiritual rest uh, forever. The children find their father's home, Jerusalem, the best. The, the, all the labor is done. All the fighting, all the struggle is done. All the sorrow is done. And the salvation is complete and full. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. It, it tells us that we're free at last, but we're there with God and Christ. There's no sun. There's no need of any light. And the, and the church of the firstborn, it says you're there with all the other believers. You're there with angels. Those pictures of the elders and the angels in, the, in Revelation, they bowed down. We're going to see that with our own eyes, so to speak. We'll be part of that, uh, that group in the, in the new Jerusalem, the heavy, heavenly Jerusalem uh, that comes down uh, from God. So then we come to our, uh, this was our fifth, fifth heading under... Uh, the second oracle, which, uh, uh, which started in uh, chapter 12. And uh, this is concerning the mourning that, becomes, uh, that comes because of the pouring out of God's Spirit that gives a correct understanding of the death of Christ. So that's where we're going in verse 10 through 14. Uh, the, first thing, the first thing that we see in, in verse 10 is that Yahweh says he will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And then uh, they'll look on him whom they pierce. But Yahweh pours out his spirit. Uh, he is not 
stingy with his grace. It reminds us of Joel's prophecy that God will pour out his spirit. And Joel's prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost and it produced sorrow and repentance. And just like this passage, the focus was the crucifixion of Christ. Also the resurrection. And in that interesting uh, sequence, uh, Peter points to David and says, remember, David died. He was not raised again. Jesus Christ was raised again. Uh, the type can only go so far. David's still in the grave. Christ is not in the grave, he says. And the sorrow, this sorrow was, was worked in those people. At the end of Peter's message, it says they were pierced. They were pierced or pricked in their hearts. They looked on the one who they pierced, and then they were pierced and they were, they were pricked in their own hearts or cut in their own hearts, some of the versions say. Well, this is just, this is just God's promise to, to pour out the Spirit. And, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's unlimited. Isaiah 32, 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful orchard. Only God can do that. Ezekiel 39, 29, I will not hide my face from them any longer for I will have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord Yahweh. The, uh, the, reception, the reception of this is understood by Paul when he says, and the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the versions say grace overflowed or it was exceedingly uh, abundant. It, it means to be present in great abundance. Uh, Paul is saying, look at the kind of sinner that I was. And, and God poured out this great abundant grace on me. That's the only way I would be converted. But only if you're a Pharisee are you going to make comparisons. Because if you truly understand yourself, it doesn't matter if Paul persecuted the church. You can't say, well, he was a bigger sinner than me. I needed less grace. That's wrong. We needed grace that was, that was poured out. We needed grace that, that over-exceeded. And if we look back, we would say, I'm amazed at the amount of grace that God gave me because I was so far away. Trapp says, God pours as, as, as whole pailfuls, right? You, back then, I guess they didn't have big hoses, right? Trapp just thought, well, a pail is about as good as I could do. And he says, God gives grace, like pailfuls of grace just being thrown out. God is no penny father. I think we looked at this word before. He means he's no miser. God isn't stingy. Our slang thing, which I had to look up. I didn't know where it came from. God is not a cheapskate. What does that mean? But that's, that's the idea. He's not miserly. There's pailfuls of grace. No small gifts fall from so great a hand. He gives liberally. One of the other writers says it's, a, it's telling us that, that, that the Spirit has overflowed all the banks. It's, it's overflowing. And then notice, 
notice the recipients and this is important because this picks up the this thread of thought verse 7 house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem verse 10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and chapter 3 of chapter 13 verse 1 a fountain will be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. The, the same, it's this, the same uh, focus. You remember the, uh, the prophetic, uh, uh, the prophetic uh, uh, fulfillments or the prophecies put us in the last week of Jesus' life. We're still in that context. We're, we're still seeing it. We're, we're going to look at, at Christ in his crucifixion. But it's the same uh, recipients. These passages indicate the part for the whole, as we said before. It's just using the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem as a part for the whole. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is only poured out on anybody who's from the house of David, and it's only poured out on inhabitants of Jerusalem. Well, where do you live? Well, I'm from Bethel. Well, the Spirit doesn't get poured out on you? No, that's not true. It's a part for the whole. And, and, and that's how God's uh, spirit goes. It should be said uh, that these prophecies are all centered in Jerusalem. Where, where did Christ come as the humble one on the donkey? He came right into Jerusalem. Where would they look on him whom they pierced right into Jerusalem? This, the controversy between Jesus and the false prophets and his removing them. Where did that happen? It happened in uh, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, what is poured out? Uh, so we, we looked at the uh, the pouring, we looked at the recipients, and then what is poured out? The spirit of grace uh, and supplication. Some versions capitalize the spirit. And that that leads to an interesting interpretation of the uh, uh, of the verse because it makes it a it makes it a triune verse. Uh, it, but uh, he, uh, only the Spirit can give this grace and supplication that's, that's necessary. So I think the, the, the capital is good. It, it reminds us God's Spirit is, is working. Uh, there is a reaction to looking at the one who is pierced. And we'll see later there's an improper reaction to looking at Christ crucified and a proper reaction to looking at Christ crucified. So the Spirit pours it out, and then there's grace. There is no grace without the work of the Holy Spirit. Grace often uh, is used to talk about, uh, right, spiritual graces. Well, what are they? That, that's the whole package, isn't it? God gave me grace. What is that? Well, he gave you God's riches at Christ's expense, but he gave you all the, the, the grace to lead the Christian life, too. Uh, Joshua mentioned it last week. Last week, you, you, you've been baptized with him, buried with him. You've been raised to walk in newness of life, but God gives you the help to walk in newness of life. He gives you the grace. If you ask for grace, James says, he gives more grace. So grace is kind of like the everything. It's spiritual views and a spiritual walk and a, a spiritual perspective. It turns into spiritual sorrow and, 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 and spiritual repentance uh, for the one who is pierced. And this grace has to be from the Spirit. Spurgeon says, 
it is always a creation of the Holy Spirit. There never was any real godly sorrow such as works repentance and acceptance to God except that which was a result of the Holy Spirit's own work within the soul. Oh, I get to do more about my sin. I have to feel more sorrow. No, that's not where it came from. It came from the pouring out of the Spirit and grace that worked in the heart. So grace came. All these benefits. A spirit of godly sorrow. This all came. But then, supplication. Supplication, the ESV says, please for mercy. Uh, the, uh, the publican stood in the corner. And he was pleading, plead for mercy. God be merciful to me, a sinner. It, it says that's what he kept saying. He had this monotone thing. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Well, that, that is the pleas for mercy. That is the supplication. After a work of the Spirit, a person begins to, to pray from a spirit of humility, intent on receiving mercy from God. Grace, the whole package, and supplication. And Barnes says, so the spirit of grace and supplication is the same spirit infusing grace and bringing into a state of favor with God. And a spirit of supplication is that spirit calling out of the inmost soul the cry for a yet larger measure of the grace that's already given. He, he says, first of all, it starts, but then it continues. Because when you realize that you have grace from God, then you say, I want more. This is good stuff. I remember that, that, that crass thing where they used to say, try Jesus, you'll never go back. That's not it. You need a work of the Holy Spirit. But when you have it, the inmost soul cries for yet a yet larger measure of the grace that's already given. You remember in, uh, in Acts, Paul went to Damascus and he's, he's struck on the road. And then, and then God's trying to get this guy, Ananias, to go. And, and, and Ananias says, I'm not, going, I'm not going there. Didn't you hear what, you know, you're telling God, didn't you hear what he's here for? But, but what does he tell Ananias that, that's a comfort? What's Paul doing? Pray. He's praying. There's a person named Saul for behold... He's praying. That's all he tells him. I want you to go there and tell him all the things that he's going to suffer for the kingdom of God and this and that and this. And behold, he's praying. He got knocked on his knees and after that he didn't get off of his knees. That's the idea, isn't it? What are you going to find Paul doing? What did it say that he was breathing out before? And threatenings, violence. You a Christian? I'm coming. I'm coming after all of you. I'm going to find out who believes in Jesus here and they're going to pay for it. And now where is he? You see the spirit of grace and supplication. You see, you see the marks of it. And what did Paul do? He was probably asking for larger measures of the grace that, it, that, that he had found. Jesus said, Jesus said, Paul, I'm, 
I'm concerned about your life, basically. He says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Right? To, to get oxes to move, they had these pricks at their back. Uh, would you stop that? Here's another one. I'll give you another goad. Would you stop that? Well, plow faster. Goad again. Goad again. You, you do that one more time, right? That's what we'd be saying. And Jesus says, that's the picture of your life. It's hard for you to live because your conscience just keeps bothering you. Your conscience just pricks you and pricks you. You're doing the wrong thing. And then he says, you'll find him praying. Well, I want to stop there with the object. There's too, there's too much to get into uh, to start the object. But the object is that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Very interesting verse. We'll look at this later because uh, uh, Gary can't preach this evening. We'll look at this later. But they'll look on me who they pierced. And then it says him and the spirit is already in the verse. So uh, we'll look later on at the Trinitarian aspects of this uh, verse that's before us. Uh, so let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the things that we've studied this morning. Uh, we anticipate looking on him uh, who we pierced, who they pierced. Jesus Christ was of no concern to us until the spirit of grace and supplication met us. We're thankful for your outpouring uh, of your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.